Good morning, how are you? Good, that song gets me so fired up. I don't even know what that was, but it feels like Rage Against the Machine, which like it fires me up because we're gonna talk about today uh, masculinity and manhood, and I wanna do a new series that we're starting today called Manifesto. And I wanna get into this issue about masculinity, about what it means to be men in our culture today. And it occurs to me as I was looking back over our notes, we have not done a series specifically aimed at men at this church in seven years. And a few things have changed in the last seven years culturally around this issue of of masculinity. And so I wanted to spend some time over the next four weeks, five weeks, I guess, over the next five weeks talking about this and and, and talking about where where it's going and and talking about what God is actually calling men to be. And I I think there's a a lot of resources there. There's actually several reasons why we wanted to do this series. Number one, our culture is talking about it a lot, Uh, mostly Masculinity is uh, prefaced with the word toxic in our culture right now. So there's a lot of conversation going on around what men are supposed to be, what they're not supposed to be, where they're useful, where they're not useful, all those sorts of things. And I want to talk about it because uh, I believe God made men. And he wrote some things down for us in the scripture about that. And so if we are going to look at ourselves and go, who are we? Who are we supposed to be? We should look at the one who made us and ask him, okay, what did you design us for? What is this about? Who are we supposed to be? So I think the scripture actually gives us some great resources to talk about masculinity. Another reason I want to talk about manhood and and men in church is that in the American church, 60% of all churches are female. So far more women are dialed into their faith than men are. And on the one hand, I want to say praise God for that. Uh, In my own experience, my dad was super checked out of faith. He he would wave at my mom and I when we went to church and just say, enjoy learning from the sky pilot. That's how he referred to God. A strong faith, a man of faith he was. Uh, And and so he would just sort of wave at us as we would go. And so I am thankful that um, I had a mother who, who, when I started coming to faith, she encouraged that, supported that. I came to faith first, but then she came with me and, and was, was, was on board. And so praise God for women who are dialed in. But as I look ac- across the landscape of America, I say, okay, more women are attracted or are involved in their faith than men. We need to do something to reach the men because they're, they're, there's a larger population of them that are disconnected from, from their faith, and, and I want to do something. And so we want to be strategic about that. Um, and, and, and in fact, the, the statistics show, this is really interesting, if a child comes to faith first in a household, there's a 3.5% chance the entire family will come to faith. That was my story. Very unusual, though. If uh, the mother comes to faith, there is a 17% chance that the entire family will come to faith. But if the father of the household comes to faith first, there's a 93% chance that the entire family will come. So we want to be strategic and say, how do we speak to men? Because if we can reach men, we can reach uh, an, an entire culture and, and really start to move some things and change some things. Um, a, a third reason we want to do a series aimed at men is because if we can help men be better men and more godly men, that's better for all of us, men or women alike. It's a, it's a rising tide that raises all boats. Women in the room right now, you know men who need to be here. You know men who are here. You're, you have husbands. You have boyfriends. You have sons. You have coworkers. You have friends. You have a boss. You have people. You, you have people around you that are male. And if we can speak to them and challenge them and, and get them to be better at, at how God designed them to be, that's better for you too. Like that's going to be a great thing if men step up and live with purpose and, and, and honor the women in their lives. And so we want to, we want to elevate that and, and try to help men uh, to, to be better godly men. Um, another reason we want to talk about manhood here for a few weeks is that 
The culture of masculinity in America is not awesome. And a lot of it is the fault of men. Uh, a lot of things that they have done in America today and, and historically. Almost all homicides are committed by men. Almost all rapes are committed by men. There's a lot of violence out there, and it's at the hands of men. And so there's a lot of stuff going on that's not good that men are perpetrating. And in addition to that, there's things happening to men that also is not good. I found some statistics on, on, the, on the modern man. And number one, the suicide rate for men is five times higher than that of women. Uh, in, in boys, the diagnosis of ADHD and depression is four times higher than in girls. Two-thirds of the homeless population in America is male. Alcoholism rate is twice as high for men as it is for women. And the drug addiction rate is three times as high. And we know from almost any study that's out there, men are far more likely to struggle with all of those things and not tell anyone because they're, they're ashamed to speak up. So men end up struggling alone and suffering and dying alone. And so there's, there's some significant problems there. And so we want to do something that speaks to men here for the next four or five weeks. Now, let me be clear about this because you could hear this and go, Chris, are you then just saying that like as a church, are we like valuing men over women? Not at all. Not at all. And, and I don't want you to hear that's not what I'm saying. Women are equal to men in dignity and in worth and in all these things before the Lord. We are, we are all co-inheritors of our salvation from Christ. Like we are, he, he, he sees us as equals. And so I'm not valuing one or the other, but I am pointing at men and saying there's something we need to talk about here. There's some, there's some unique things going on in the culture, and we need to speak, speak to it. Um, I, I am blessed, and I am grateful for the strong women that are in this church and in the kingdom of God. There are women that lead all over this church, and they do incredible work, and I have no desire to pastor a church of only men. I don't want to be the pastor of the animal house. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. We'd be lighting gas and stuff. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. Like, I, I, uh, there, are, there are, are really strong women here, but I think we need to speak to this because with all of the toxic masculinity, I guess, floating around in the culture, um, we, need to, we need to speak into it and say, okay, what, what is a better way to walk? How, what does God call us to, to really be? I mean, if, if, if any, anything is, if we're on a sinking ship here as a culture, I want to be the guy standing in the bottom of the boat going, this is where the holes are. Like, let's start plugging them. Here's where we have some issues. Let's talk about this thing and really get it out on the table. So we're going to spend uh, four of the next five weeks talking through this, and uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. So let's, let's jump in. In our culture, I believe there are two major false narratives that men are given about who they are and who they're supposed to be. The first one, these are two lies our culture tells. The first one is this hyper-macho masculinity. This is this idea that men are supposed to be... Um, just tough, never let him see you sweat, never let him, let him see you cry. And you think that's not a big deal, but I, I can guarantee you, um, I would say pretty fair, a fair bet that every man in this room has a moment they remember from childhood where some adult or older child said to them, don't cry, that's not what boys do. Don't be a wuss, don't be a little girl. Whatever that communicates about girls, we could talk about that in another conversation, but it at least communicates to boys, you're being, by showing emotion, you're being something that you're not supposed to be. 
And all men grow up hearing that. We've all heard that story. I remember it very well. I, was, I don't remember where it was except I was in a garage. And an older boy told me when I wanted to cry, he told me, don't do that. And I was like, how? How do you not cry? And he said, you just, you just stop it. You just don't. And I learned, hey, this thing, not okay. Right? And, and men get this message and it's a hyper-masculine, macho idea that you're supposed to be tough, that you're supposed to break things, you're supposed to kill things, you're supposed to hunt things, you're supposed to, and, and if you're not into that, then you're not masculine. Masculinity then is, in this hyper-macho thing is shown as athletic prowess, are you good on a, on a sports field, and sexual conquest, are you good with the ladies? And if you can do those things, then you are a man and there's that entire narrative in our culture, and that's out there. And that leads to the, the, the mess that we see in our culture today. That leads to the, the entire rise of the Me Too movement. That leads to your Harvey Weinsteins and other people who treat women as, as conquests. And it's a horrible lie our culture tells men that this is the way they're supposed to be. And our daughters and our sisters are suffering the violence of it. That's not right. And there's a second lie that when we swing the pendulum the other way, there's a second lie our culture tells, and it says there's basically no difference between men and women. We sort of flatten the whole gender idea out and say, well, yeah, it, there may be some biological differences, but, but basically we're all just the same here. And so there's nothing particularly masculine you need to be. There's nothing different that you need to be from women. Whatever, whatever, however women feel, you should feel the same way. However, th th there's nothing special about your, your role as, as a man. Um, and, and I think that also, that idea is false and it seriously undercuts the differences between men and women that God has wired into us. It isn't to say there aren't uh, masculine men or strong men um, that that exists that, that have a softer side, um, that's, that's an okay thing. In fact, the men in the Bible, David is a warrior. He's also like a musician, poet, singer guy, right? Jesus, you picture him as strong and powerful. And yet Jesus one time, he said, oh, Jerusalem, I long to gather you like a hen gathers the chicks under her wings. Not a very strong masculine image, right? And yet there's a, there's a, there's a balance there. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's, there's no balance there, but I'm saying this idea that our culture flattens it all and says there's no difference between men and women is, is a lie. Here's what I believe, and here's what I believe Scripture teaches. Men are going to be best when they act like men. Men are going to be best when they act according to the design God has given them, and women will also function best when they act according to the design that God has given them. When we are in those lanes and doing uh, how God has wired us up, we will flourish. Our society will flourish. As I was studying through this, I came across a scripture that was really interesting. Um, just looking through the Apostle Paul, he wrote a, to a, a letter to the church in the city of Corinth. And, and he gives these little, at the end of his letter, he gives these little quick hitter ideas. And I want you to hear what he says in 1 Corinthians 16. Listen to this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And I read that and I thought, act like men. Does anybody know what that means anymore? Like that meant something. He, he definitely was saying act like something other than female or children. He said men. In fact, if you look at it in the Greek, he says this. He basically translates to play the man. I like that. Play the man. But what does that mean? What does it mean to act like men, to play the man in, in our lives? 
Well, I think there's some clue even in the text there. Stand firm in the faith, be strong, he says. This is acting like men. You stand firm in the faith. Not stand firm in your own sense of discipline. Look, I love discipline. I can geek out about it. I got that you've seen me wear the shirt up here. Discipline equals freedom. I love it. I I can get into all that. But we don't stand firm in discipline. We don't stand firm in our will. We don't stand firm in our power, in our good looks, in our money, in any of those things. He says, stand firm in the faith. You stand firm in Christ. And when we stand firm in him, and we allow him to shape us and form us, then we become who God is calling us to be. And a lot of men don't feel equipped to do that and don't understand how to do that. But, but he, that's what he's calling us to, stand firm in, in the faith. That's acting like a man. Let, let your faith drive you and form you and shape you. And if that seems impractical you, to you, uh, I promise you it's not. Uh, near 100% of the problems in our culture around toxic masculinity would go away if men would do this. If men would say, I'm going to stand firm in my faith. I'm going to stand firm for God. And therefore, I'm going to treat women better. I'm going to treat money differently. I'm going to treat power differently. If men would start there, a lot of the problems in our culture would go, would go away. But instead, we try to stand firm into money and power and looks and a million other, other things. So what does it mean to play the man? I want to unpack that over the next couple weeks. And, I, and to do so, I want to talk about a guy named Samson from the Old Testament. And Samson's an interesting choice because he's kind of an anti-hero. In fact, um, my buddy Sam here at the church pointed out to me that Samson uh, is really the Anakin Skywalker of the Old Testament, Um, Samson is, see if this sounds familiar, Samson is born with a lot of potential and promise and kind of thought of to be the chosen one. As he gets older, it it really derails for him, mostly around lust and anger. Um, And then he kind of melts down. He turns to what we might call the dark side. um, And and things go very dark for him for a while. He gets his eyes, eyes gouged out, in fact. And then at the very end of his life, he has one tiny little slightly redemptive moment that makes it all kind of better, sort of. Yes, that's Samson. That's also Anakin, interestingly enough. Um, But that is kind of the the timeline, the storyline of this guy in the Old Testament named Samson. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, they always told me, the thing I knew about Samson is that he was strong. And so I always pictured him as this muscly guy. In fact, childhood Chris imagined Samson to look a lot like this. That's how I thought... (laughs) That's what I thought Samson looked like. Um, he was muscly and probably, I don't know, blonde for some reason. That doesn't make a lot of sense in the Middle East, but there I was in Florida. That's what I thought. And uh, I imagined him as this, this, what I knew about him was that he was strong and he, and he killed people with, a, with his bare hands and whatever. So I was like, oh, he's a really tough guy. Um, and, and I thought he was kind of a hero in some ways. But it, as I've gotten older, I've realized what an anti-hero Samson is. He has all sorts of potential, and he completely shipwrecks his life. And he womanizes, and he's angry, and he just makes a mess of all of his promise and potential. And, and having grown up as an adult now and, and feeling at times that I've made a mess sometimes of my promise and potential and seeing that around with other men around me, I'm like, actually, this guy's pretty relatable uh, as, as far as like not maybe living up to all that he could be. And so um, I think he's a good guy for us to, 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 to study. Um, Samson was a guy born for a purpose. Mark Twain, or at least it may be erroneously attributed to Mark Twain having said the two most important days in a person's life is the day they were born and the day they find out why. Now, most people who are scholars of Mark Twain will tell you that that quote is 
far too optimistic for Mark, Mark Twain. So even if it's not Mark Twain, I think there's something there. It's an important day when we figure out what we're here for. What are we made for? We're born for what? What, what is our purpose? And as men, what, what does that look like? What, why are we here? And so I want to look at Samson. We're going to look at Judges. Um, he, he appears after Moses. So Moses leads the Israelites to the promised land. Joshua takes over in about 1406 B.C. Um, and they, they are ruled by a period of judges. It's written in a book called the Book of Judges. Um, some of you who maybe aren't familiar with Christianity are not surprised that there's a book in the Bible called Judges. Because uh, it sounds like, oh, judging. Yeah, that's where people learn to get more judgmental. Awesome. That's not what it's about. It's about a group of leaders who led Israel before they had a king. They get a king in about 1100, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. Uh, but before that, they were ruled by a group called the Judges. And in that period of time, they become dominated by, by their neighbors, the Philistines. And so Samson has some encounters with them. And in Judges 13, 1, we, we, we pick it up there where Samson is uh, brought into the story. Judges 13, 1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, hold on there for a second. We read that and we go, oh, they did evil, and then God decided to, like, knock them down a peg. Like, God was like, you guys are idiots. I'm going to smite you. I'm going to punish you. This isn't God raining on their parade. Really, more of what this is is God giving them what they deserve. Like, if you're going to go crazy, God will let that thing go. There are natural uh, punishments or natural uh, effects of the things that we do. And so, you know... If you, if you blow it financially, you're going to be in debt. You know, you, you may have a crazy ex because you dated a crazy person. Like, I don't know. Like, there, there are things that happen that are natural results of our behavior. It's not God punishing you. These are natural results. And so that, that's what happens. They, they are blowing it, and the Philistines come in and take over and dominate them. Reading on, verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Interesting that God tells her not to have a bunch of alcohol while she's pregnant. Doesn't explain why. He just tells her, and she's like, okay. Um, but he says to her, uh, this is going to be a special child for a special purpose. He's going to be a Nazarite, is the way it's described. Um, and, and you're not going to cut his hair. And so there's this kind of weird thing going on with that. Now, Nazarites were a special group of people kind of set aside for the Lord. Samson was one. Um, there's another guy in the Old Testament named Samuel who was a Nazarite. There's some evidence to suggest that John the Baptist was a Nazarite in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18 seems to take something that they think was a Nazarite vow where he vows like not, or where he shaves his head or whatever. So there's like this other kind of thing going on there. Um, it just means that these people were set apart, that they were made for a particular purpose. They were like dedicated to God. So what was the purpose Samson was set apart for? Um, looking at verse 5 again, it says, no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and what? He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. God's calling on Samson is you're going you're gonna to 
you're going to protect your people. You're going to reach uh, and, 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 and help them and serve them. He doesn't say you're going to finish the job. He said you're going to begin, you're going to save the Israelites. You're going to get the ball rolling. This was the calling from God on Samson. Now, men, we are not Samson. It is not our calling necessarily to rescue our nation. But I think there is a universal call here on Samson that I'll show you in a second goes even deeper in us. And it's this, men are called to provide and to protect. This isn't just about Samson. Yes, he's called in in this moment to do that for Israel. And Jesus is called to provide and protect for his people and save them. So so you see that in this ultimate man in Jesus. But this is also about you. Our greatest calling in life is to provide and to protect those around us. And our greatest sin and our greatest failure will be when we fail to step up and do just that. In fact, you can see it all the way back at the dawn of humanity. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And, and the way we always think of the story is a serpent comes along and he tempts Eve and then she takes fruit from a tree. We always say it's an apple. We don't know what it was, but she takes this fruit and, and she takes it and she sins by not eating. She wasn't supposed to eat from that tree. She could eat from any tree in the garden. She chose the one tree that she wasn't allowed to eat from because the, Satan, because the serpent, Satan, told her to eat from that tree. And, it says, and then she gave the fruit to her husband and we're like, see, it's Eve's fault. Like Adam was just minding his business and then she came and messed everything up. She listened to that crazy serpent and then, and then everything went awry, right? But that's not actually how the text lays out the story. In Genesis 3, verse 6, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was, de- was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It's subtle, But what you see later in the next few verses is that God lays the responsibility of this failure, of this mess, on Adam. It's not just, oh, Eve did it and steered you wrong. Actually, that's what Adam says when God says, what did you do? Adam's like, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman that you gave me. That's his response. He's like, I I don't know, man. Like her. You Remember you gave her to me? It was her fault. And but God lays the responsibility. God comes looking to Adam in this moment and says, what did you just allow happen in your house? You have a responsibility to provide and protect, and you did nothing when she was being overwhelmed. Now listen, women, this does not mean that you are totally helpless and that if only you had someone to save you. It doesn't mean that. She has a responsibility for what she did as well, but when she was being overwhelmed, like we all are at times, Her husband stood idly by and did nothing to help her, nothing to provide for her, nothing to protect her from what was was coming for her. And our greatest sin is when we fail to do the same. We fail to provide and protect. When When we do nothing, when we should be doing something, when we need to get a job and we end up doing nothing, when our kids need to be disciplined but we end up doing nothing, when we need to take care of our health and we know we should but we end up doing nothing, when we need to stimulate our minds and pour into relationships and treat people around us with honor and we end up doing nothing. This is, this is the failure, this is the sin that gets us down. So when Samson shows up, we see God is gonna raise him up to protect and provide for the nation of Israel. And I believe God calls all men to the same thing. And our greatest sin is if we go all passive. 
But our greatest action is if we will step up to that high calling and protect and provide. So what does that mean? It means we leverage our strength, our brains, our character. We leverage all that we have for anyone around, for, 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 for people who need support and help, for, for, for women around us, for children around us. Like, let me give you examples. Like me as a husband. If you know my wife, you know she's strong and she can handle her business. You know, you, you, if you have interactions with her, you know she takes care of things, she gets things done, it, it's fine. But part of being married to me means she doesn't have to always handle all her business, that she's got someone who will be a support to her, who will encourage her, who will help her flourish, who will come alongside of her, who will do my best to provide for her and protect her so that she can flourish. That is my responsibility, that I, that I want to care for her so that she can flourish, um, could she do it without me? I guess so, but she doesn't have to because she has me here to, to be a part of this. Um, same thing as, as a father. It is my responsibility to protect and provide for my family, for my, my kids. I have sons, and I'm trying to raise them up to be men who will protect and provide for families of their own one day. And I've got to model that, and I've got to show that to them and say, this is what it means to work hard. This is what it means to love well. This is what it means to display emotion and, and, and do all of these other things. And, and we work on all of that stuff in our home. Um, God calls men to protect and provide. Single men, you're not off the hook here. Um, you go, okay, well, that's good for husbands. That's good for fathers. But, but single men, um, can you leverage your strength for the vulnerable around you? Can you leverage your strength to protect women and children that you see everywhere? Because a lot of the things that have happened in our culture are when, not just when one bad man does something to a, to a woman, uh, a lot of things that we've seen are when other men stand around passively doing nothing while it happens. And so part of protect and provide, single or married, part of, part of our responsibility is you've got to look for people who are being taken advantage of. And you've got to speak up for those who... Uh, have no power. You have to use your voice for those who are are in pain and are being are are being hurt. Um, how much would our culture change if if men uh, took that approach to women? The Scripture calls us to v- treat women as sisters and mothers. If single men did that, how would that change the dating scene? If they stopped treating women as potential conquests, but instead as, as someone's daughter, as, as a sister in Christ, as uh, treating older women as mothers? Like, how, how, would, how would that soften our, our culture? Now, women, it's, um, you're not exempt from any responsibility here. This is a series aimed at men. Um, Eve has to own what she did as well. And I'm not saying here that you can't take care of yourself. What I'm saying is, wouldn't it be better if the men around you stepped up and helped? Wouldn't wouldn't everyone flourish a little bit if, if men stepped to the responsibility that God has given them? And, they, and wouldn't it be better for you as women if the men around you used their strength to protect and provide and not to control and manipulate? It would be a powerful thing. Men, we're going to need to talk about treating women with respect. Uh, we'll do that next week. We'll talk about anger the week after because it is something that, uh, that men, a, a lot of men struggle with. But let me just start with some just... To kind of cap all this off, let me start with some very practical steps for men to start living out our, our, our purpose. 
The problem is you can hear a message like this and you go, God made me for something. I have a purpose. I have a calling. I have a mission. I'm supposed to be something. And it's easy to start looking out on the social media feed or looking out into the world and go, man, there are many dragons to slay out there. I'm going to pick up my sword and go after one of them. I'm going to get, I'm going to get after this thing and this injustice and, and here's racism and here's poverty and here's all. And, and we go after the things. And, and, and that's not all bad. Like that's, there, there's a lot of good things there. But I want to suggest very practically that we start a lot more simply than, than, than all of that. Um, that, that really, we, we want to do something great, but often we fail to understand that greatness starts with a couple few uh, steps. We can rail against the left in America. We can rail against the right. We can rail against capitalism and racism and anything that thinks we hold, that we're being held down and we can believe we're born for a purpose. But what if we just took some simple steps um, as men to... To, before we go protesting and complaining about something. Um, the psychologist in Canada, Jordan Peterson, he said this, and it's actually now become like an internet meme. Um, but basically, his suggestion to men is that they make their bed. That's his like big suggestion. Like, if you want to change the world, make your bed. Now, I'm not just talking to junior hires in the room, although there are some of you, and you probably need to hear this. Uh, but this goes all the way up. Here's a simple start. Make your bed. And here's why. Here's why he suggests that. And I, and I think there's actually some biblical wisdom to it, and I'll get to it in a second. But he says, basically, if you make your bed, you've started with a win for the day. You've, you've started by accomplishing something. You've, made, you've ordered some of the chaos in your world. So you've started there simply. And if you do that, you'll then start thinking about how you sleep. And if you start sleeping better, that's going to be good. And then you'll start thinking about how you eat, and then which will carry over into your work. And before you go to anyone and tell them how to live or to challenge them or whatever, why don't you start in that simple space of just make your bed. Like you do you, except in this case we mean you get you in order and, and, and handle your own situation. And then you can go start tackling some other things that are going on in the culture. If you can't make your bed, how are you going to change the world? Uh, this is similar to what Jesus says in Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. You start with the little things and get those little things in order. And then the other things will take care of, take care of themselves. So well, let's start there, men. There's challenges for the week. I'm going to keep this real simple right up front. Make your bed this week. All right? Uh, if you live with a man and he didn't make his bed, feel free to email me. We can have a, we start accountability thing on this. Like that we are the bed makers of America and we're starting right here in Richmond, Virginia. We're going to make it a thing. Um, just start with a little, a, a little win like that. And, and next week I want to get in some challenging stuff, um, for the next, for the next several weeks. Um, because masculinity is a bit of a mess right now in culture, and, and I think we can do, and I think we can be better. And we're not going to dig out of the mess by just saying nice things up here for a couple weeks. Uh, we're going to have to say some, some challenging things and get real. But I think um, our culture needs us to be better. I, I read a great story about um, wolves that are in Yellowstone, and it was written down, I think, it, I think it might come from a book, I think it's called Playing God in Yellowstone, but um, mankind has had an interesting relationship, to say the least, with nature, and particularly about our levels of control. And so um, they, we were sort of trying to experiment in, uh, in Yellowstone. I want to read this to you. It says, in 1872, Yellowstone National Park was created, and it was beautiful. It was expansive, but it had a problem. 
The gray wolf. The gray wolf is a predator. The gray wolf is aggressive. The gray wolf is dangerous. So partly due to government programs, partly due to fear, the gray wolf was hunted down, and by 1926, it was exterminated so that no gray wolves inhabited Yellowstone. But by the 1990s, they were facing a growing elk population that had no natural predators, and they were destroying all the trees in the park. So after much debate and amid much protest, in 1995, they reintroduced gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park. And the main result they wanted to control the elk population worked. They started hunting and eating the elk. But they were shocked by what else took place. Because the elk were hunted, they started avoiding certain areas where they'd be easy targets. In those areas, trees started growing where no trees had been for decades. Those trees attracted more species of birds, including bald eagles. Because there were fewer elk, more berries grew, attracting more bears. When, when those new trees grew, beavers naturally re-entered the park and they started building dams. Those dams attracted otters, muskrats, ducks, fish, reptiles, and amphibians. As the wolves began killing coyotes, the population of mice and rabbits increased. That attracted more hawks, weasels, foxes, and badgers. But the most striking thing that took place involved the rivers. Because the elk weren't eating everything in the park, the forest grew, erosion topped, rivers flowed more freely as the channels narrowed, and they found a new path through the park. If you had asked the scientists 30 years ago, how many wolves will it take to change the course of a river, they would have said, are you crazy? But we know the answer. The answer is 14. And because those 14 wolves lived the way God designed them to live, everything changed for the better. And in a toxic masculinity culture, my question is, how many men will it take to change the course of history? Jesus started with 12 men. Now, he's Jesus. He had a pretty good plan going on, and he, he knew what he was doing. We have more than that in this room. Maybe we have 100 men in here. Can we, can we, can we start a change with 100? Can we start with 100 men saying, I commit to live differently than the culture around me? I commit to, to when I see the abuse, I call it out. I commit to not being the abuser. I commit to the, that the locker room talk stops with me. Can we start that? Can we change the course of history? Are wolves dangerous? Yeah, they are. Are they violent? Yeah, they are. Are they needed? Absolutely. There's toxic masculinity in, in our culture, and what's needed is not less masculinity, it's just less toxicity. We need more masculinity, more men to step up and play the man. Because when they do, everybody wins. Let's pray. Lord, I pray over the course of this series as we wade into these issues that you um, speak to the men and women in this room, that they uh, hear your truth and understand how you've wired us to be. And Lord, next year is when we look into how God wired women to be, that, that we, we are all present and, and dialed into that so we understand the, the, the different roles that, that you've called us to. God, we know that um, there's a lot of brokenness, and um, God, we confess that we've caused it, that we've allowed systems to, to go. We've, we've turned a blind eye to, 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 to inappropriate humor, to inappropriate action, um, God, it, it, it doesn't take a lot of people 
to start bringing about the change. And God, may, may it start here. I, I have no platform, Lord, to speak to the world about this. I have no platform to speak to Richmond generally about this. What I have is this room. Can we as men uh, do better and be better and be who you called us to be, to be men who will provide and protect for those around us? Um, Lord, raise up more men amongst us who are willing to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.